Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we're joined by Molly Francis, friend of the pod and writer from the United States. We talk cults and cancellation, what to do about big tech, and how the nexus exacerbates mental illness. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. Um, we're here with our friend Molly Francis, or as we say in Quebec, Molly France. Um, <laughs> writer from the west coast of the united states um and a personal friend of the pod definitely a friend of the pod also known as the mole Holy <laughs> <laughs> the mole francis hi um yeah hi how's it going molly i'm good i'm excited to talk to you yeah we're I'm really excited. excited too yeah. yeah thanks for coming on the pod um so right off the bat um what uh, can you like tell us about a bit about your work, what you do, what kinds of things you write about, and uh, what you're all about? Yeah, so I write a lot about um, about cancel culture, about uh, my frustrations with the kind of liberal left or woke people. I don't know. There are all sorts of ways you can you can call it identitarianism um, and all of that. So so that's what I write about. Um, I also write about my problems uh, with like corporate social media. So that's something I talk about Mm -hmm. too. Um, So kind of, I write like social political ish commentary. Um, And then occasionally I'll, I'll throw out a little, little romance writing. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. Um, Like occasional little (laughs) snippets of memoir and love. (laughs) Yeah. I love, I love romantic Molly. That's one of my favorite (laughs) Molly versions. Thanks. Um, Okay. So like for our listeners, um, how would you situate yourself politically? Like specifically, I'm interested in like hearing you talk about socialism because you're you're an outspoken socialist. Um, and I feel like in Instagram land anyway, there's a severe lack of that. So talk about your politics. Sure. So I, yeah, I'm definitely, I'll, I'll say I'm a socialist. I am a socialist. Um, but like what breed of socialist, what variety? I feel like I, I don't even feel qualified to answer that. Like I, I'm a socialist. And the reason for that is because it aligns with my principles and values. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I believe that humans ought to be like afforded autonomy. Um, and that can't happen without access to basic resources and capital. Um, I believe that humans um, have a right to live free from economic and political exploitation. They deserve freedom from unnecessary suffering like poverty, which, you know, um, doesn't have to exist. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it does because the ruling class has um you know stolen away with the fruits of the labor of the people um i don't believe that there's any ethical or rational justification that um like the top i think 9 billionaires own the same amount of wealth as half of the rest of humanity mm-hmm. um their wealth has grown exorbitantly through the pandemic um elon elon musk in particular his net worth shot up like 
750% or something. So fucked up. It's so fucked up. And anyway, so yeah, I think that that wealth belongs to the the workers worldwide whose labor created it or created that value, you know? So I'm a socialist. And um, I think the other descriptor that I might use is like non-identitarian socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're going to maybe talk about identitarianism later, but yeah. yeah. Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so as you know, and our listeners know, um, we describe uh, kind of like woke world or like the identitarian liberalish leftish world um, as the nexus. Um, tell us about your history within the nexus and your trajectory out of it. <laughs> okay. So my entry point into the nexus was when I was a sociology major in college. Um, I, I found Tumblr in, I guess it was 2012. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I joked the other day, I think I like tweeted it. I was like, I can't believe that Tumblr 2012 is now the, the entire world in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's crazy. And so that's where I, that's where I first entered it. And I can remember like when I first found, sorry, my cat might be screaming, but when I first found like social justice Tumblr world, I, I immediately saw all of the dynamics that, you know, you dissect on this podcast. Um, and I've written, um, a bit about as well. And I, but I was afraid of them, you know, like I, I felt like, oh, these people know what they're doing. Like the, these random people on this stupid, like (laughs) the stupid social media platform know so much better than me about how to be a human and how to treat each other and how to do politics. And so I kind of just, um, accepted that these really dysfunctional ways of engaging in um, conflict and policing each other's language or behavior were normal and actually were the right way to do things. Um, so I really internalized a lot of, of those, um, those kind of interpersonal norms and also the, uh, like the ideological catchphrases and all of that, like the buzzwords, the vocabulary, um, I really took it on and, Um, anyway, so that was kind of like my, I don't even know how to describe it. My entry point, the, the word brainwashing comes to mind, but I don't want to say that it's not really brainwashing, but indoctrination, um, maybe indoctrination. Thank you. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. So that's like where my indoctrination started was Tumblr. Um, and a little bit of college, I think too, but frankly, I think Tumblr is more impactful Mm -hmm. than college. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty wacky. Um, seriously yeah it's crazy and so then I I don't know I just I I really took that on and a lot of my friends in real life also did you know like Mm -hmm. one of my best friends who I'm still best friends with now was also really embedded in the Tumblr world um she was also another sociology major and it just kind of became our reality like it's how we mediated all of our relations like it's like it was the lens through which we saw everything in the real world and also online. Um, so yeah, that's how I entered the Nexus. Um, and how I got out was I just- Hang on, hang on. Were you, did you have a Tumblr? Like, were you like, you have your own Tumblr? Yeah, but I wasn't like super like active. Like I wasn't like a known Tumblr person. Like I, I just was a, a, 
I was a browser. I was a civilian. Yeah. So I was a Tumblr. In another life, I was a known Tumblr person. That's another story for another day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I wonder if I followed you. I might have followed you. Yeah, it's possible. But I'm not (laughs) into that right now. Okay. But yeah, tell us how you left the Nexus. What happened? What happened? Um, I got called out. I got harassed online. And then I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. I have known that this is ridiculous. I'm out. It was like, I, I left for a minute because I saw left book happen and left book was like a whole other phenomenon. It was like Tumblr became irrelevant and defunct basically. And then I think people kind of stormed Twitter and became very like, uh, woke on Twitter, but then something happened in like 2016 where suddenly all of these Facebook groups cropped Mm -hmm. up that were all about like leftism or whatever. And that was like the chaos of Tumblr and like like, Nexus Tumblr, but it was on steroids. Like it was even worse, I think. Um, And so I saw that happen and I was like, dude, I have like an office job and I'm just trying to like pay my rent and live my life. This stuff is so dumb. I'm just like cutting it off. Mm -hmm. And then I got really sick. Like I got like mentally ill um, and I wasn't getting the right treatment. And I kind of like, I, I actually left that job and I started my own like witch business, which is super funny because Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like nothing like what I do now or even believe now. Um, But I started doing tarot and astrology um, and I kind of just opened back up to the social justice world again. And it actually became like a foundational part of my practice. Um, and then quickly after starting that business and leaving my office work, becoming self-employed, also becoming pretty actively mentally ill and physically ill, um, I got like harassed on the internet in the very classic Nexus way that you talk about. Um, Mm -hmm. And suddenly it was like, I just had a huge crisis of faith in everything. And I was like, I can't fucking do this anymore. Like there are so many problems with this from the top down. Like the foundation is cracked. I got to go. I can't do this anymore. Um, And it was a long process of, excuse me. It was a long process of divorcing myself from it and kind of like pulling my identity out of it. And I think I'm still, frankly, like at the tail end of the process of that. Mm-hmm. And that was, that started three years ago. Like <laughs> it was crazy. Like it was most of my, you know, I was very embedded in the Nexus from the age of like 18 and I'm turning 28 now. So it was such a major part of my personal, like human development. Mm -hmm. Um, and like my personal individuation process, you know, and so it's been pretty tough (laughs) anyway. Totally. And like, yeah, for our listeners, like basically like after I got canceled in summer 2020 and I was like, you know, still trying to be online and stuff like this, but I was very, um, jaded and cynical about the nexus and like feeling really like, um, unmoored basically like I didn't know how to continue to like have the career that I have and have the presence online that I need to have for my career while being like you know canceled and also like not wanting to be in the nexus but not knowing how to like not be in the nexus and basically I just started to like side eye certain content creators on Instagram who I was like wait a second like I'm sensing something here and Molly was one of them and I was sort of like I'm getting a vibe like and I feel like (laughs) I feel like at that time, like you weren't, 
anywhere near as like over and critical um, of all of this stuff as you are now. And I don't even know what it was that I was picking up on. It was like certain small things that you were saying. Um, I just like slid into Molly's DMs and was like, (laughs) I was like, whoa, like what am I sensing here? You know? And like, that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship, but it's it's interesting. Like that we can kind of like spot each other. I think it's super interesting what you, what you just noted to you about the fact that like when you're embedded in the shit from the time that you're a teenager your individuation process and like your your, like your literal like personhood is super wrapped up in it and when you start to exit it can be like really difficult to kind of like have like a strong like self-image you know or like understanding of self um when when like so much of what you think about yourself and about the world is all wrapped up in this ideological framework totally um so you kind of touched on it a little bit already and like I guess I also did an entire episode on your podcast on this topic um but I want to hear you talk about it so um how do you define um identitarianism because you mentioned that earlier and um what are your issues with identitarianism or leftism that is organized around identitarianism yeah so yeah, I take big issue with identitarianism. So I think basically like identitarianism, particularly liberal identitarianism, there are all sorts of flavors of identitarianism. Yeah. Like you got white identitarianism, et cetera. I and mean, you you talk about this, right? Um, but I would say like identitarianism. Oh, sorry. I gotta take my meds. <laughs> <laughs> identitarianism it takes like these social (laughs) categories or social identities we've created like race or gender and it essentializes them like it takes these categories and it assigns them like moral qualities it assigns um sometimes like like can assign like quantifiable value um to people on the basis of these identities that are virtually like inescapable Mm -hmm. um so I guess you can try to escape them if you spend the money to do the work, <laughs> to, to become, work. to do the work. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so like, from that perspective, it basically sees, hold on, I got to move my cat. <laughs> so it basically sees like everything political through that lens. Like that's the, the, the basis for like its political imagination and Um, yeah and so it sees the political landscape as a war um between fighting identity factions um that you have to choose alignment with and it sees power as tied i think it sees power as tied um generally to like visual attributes like skin color or like facial stubble um and this is why (laughs) like you'll see calls for white people to be race traders you know Um, And identitarianism, I think one of the big problems with it is that it erases common humanity, like it, it has no commitment, um, like in itself, it doesn't have a commitment to actually getting rid of these social categories. It's actually like a commitment to double down on them. Um, Mm -hmm. So they're not, 
by you know by virtue of being identitarianisms i would or identitarians i would argue um they're not committed to like liberation of all people but actually to a belief in the superiority of their camp and the inferiority of other camps and like that is at the root of their political imagination and so that's my issue with it it just isn't like liberatory at all um i think it fractures and it factionalizes um i think that it <laughs> excuse me i think it like reifies division um and it makes it impossible like functionally impossible to unite and fight for universalist wealth redistribution against like the common enemy which is the ruling class mm-hmm. <laughs> that hoards capital um owns the means of production all of that um yeah Literally. and some yeah no no keep going keep going okay and i was gonna say like sometimes you hear these people speak like left-wing identitarianism attentitarian blah, blah 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 like left-wing identitarians yeah especially ones that are like i guess like racial identitarians um and it's like, are you a Nazi or a liberal? Like sometimes it just sounds like they're straight up like using race science um, yeah. rhetoric. It's really alarming. And so actually this morning I was scrolling through Twitter and um, there was this tweet from Pew Research and they like straight up did a survey of Latino Americans in which they asked the respondents to measure their skin color, like the shade of skin color right and so they could collect the distribution of skin color i'm like how is this progressive how is this like supportive of socialist goals like it's not it's it's just like fueling this like this fucking concept that um you know emerged after the 2020 election of multiracial whiteness like did you hear about that yeah Um, yeah it's just like this brainchild of like trump derangement syndrome um where it's like American liberals are just so hyper fixed, so hyper fixated on um, internalized white supremacy. And so it's like all of these Latinos, American Latinos voted for Trump and that sent these left-wing identitarians into a tizzy where it's like, well, how can we explain this? Oh, well, we can explain it through, you know, through an identitarian lens, through this hyper individualized kind of like psychological um almost like metaphysical concept of whatever and so yeah it's just it it obscures the realities of um why we have such abhorrent social stratification in the united states it explains away the like um yeah i I don't know it's just i think that it's a i think it's a distraction from being able to unite Um, And obviously, like, there are obviously people who are actually racist or homophobic or transphobic, like, on an individual level, and interpersonal discrimination is very real, but I think identitarianism just stays at the individual level. Um, I think that focus is insufficient. It's an incomplete understanding of things. And I feel like you've written about this on your Instagram where you were like writing about the distinction between identity politics and identitarianism, which we have talked about on the podcast, but do you want to just say something about that for our listeners? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if everybody would agree with this, but I, I see, so I see identitarianism as what I just explained, but identity politics, I would, I see as basically a shared commitment to like a universalist kind of vision of socialism, but with a, um, 
you know, a recognition that different identity categories that are like sociologically meaningful um, have different needs. And like, you know, there's just different needs that they may need to advocate for um, in creating a vision for like universalist programs or whatever. Um, and so making sure that, so that's what I see identity politics as, yeah. you know, that, it's like affinity. There's like an affinity, like a social affinity rather than like um, a fundamental division. Totally. And it's like, you know, I think people often assume that if if we're critiquing identitarianism, that that means that, you know, it's funny, actually, because a few, the people in the Jacobin show, like, joke about this, too, right? Because, like, there's the stereotype of the class reductionist and the idea that people who critique identitarianism, like, are imagining the worker as only, like, a white, straight man or whatever, like, cis man or whatever. And I'm like, have you seen me and everyone that I hang out with? Like, <laughs> I'm like, none of us are like that. I mean, like, yeah. I actually would like to actively seek out more of these these dudes to have solidarity with because, like, actually I'm in community that, like, doesn't have a lot of those dudes around. <laughs> and it's like, it's like we are all, um, like, none of us are saying that, like, sexual orientation or, like, you know, experiences of racism or, like, you know, gendered experiences or, like, whatever it is, like, don't matter. Yeah, uh, but sure. we are do have a problem with, like, eugenics. And... <laughs> And yeah. segregationism. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. I think one of the things about this like multiracial whiteness thing that keeps like cropping up in the US that's like fascinating to me is I think that it's like it's like a perfect, perfect example of how anti-communism in the United States has been so um, successful that you literally cannot talk about the ruling class, right? Right. And, yeah. and like don't like even if they're like literally they consider themselves to be like fully on the left, they don't even have the language to be able to just say like capitalists or the ruling class or like the far right or whatever they have to be like white people because like whiteness is like the only language that they have to talk about um the the practice of like like class domination basically right yeah and so if if there's like members of a class that are dominating other people um they're like it white is the only word that they can use to describe that you know and so and and since those people are not all white they have to come up with the concept they have to come up with the concept of multiracial whiteness yeah (laughs) and like the word you're looking for is class (laughs) and they can also like apply the same logic to people who are clearly workers which is what's crazy about it because they apply this idea like of whatever like white supremacy and they're meaning like class domination and then they apply that to like somebody who's just like a regular person yeah at the Mm -hmm. same time you know so, um, it's a mess. Anyways, um, moving on, you wrote an article once titled, uh, why cancel culture matters. Um, why does cancel culture matter? Molly? <laughs> um, yeah. Why cancel culture matters? It matters because it's happening. It matters because it's real and it's destroying people's lives. Like, you know, in that, in that I wrote like, um, it, yeah, it's real and it may not be like the world's most resting or awful social ill but it doesn't need to be to actually matter mm-hmm. um you know like there are so many people who have gone through this unnecessary trauma and like part of my values like I said in the beginning is just if if there is unnecessary suffering in you in like in humanity I just don't want that so it kind of goes back to that kind of core value that I have Um, But anyway, yeah, it matters because it's happening and it doesn't need to. And it's also counterproductive to what it what it says that it's trying to do, which is to create a freer world or to 
um, you know, actually find accountability. There's no accountability in cancellation spectacles. There's not, it's, it's, uh, it's a delusion, frankly. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just completely ineffective at doing anything except for scaring certain people into submission to an ideology. And the people that it scares, I think, are the people who are, I don't even, are just like anxious people anyway. Like the people who are scared by dynamics of domination and um, like these abusive, I don't know. Yeah. Dom- uh, uh, dynamics of domination and the moral puritanism. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not even the dangerous people. I think that's what like really fucks me up. I don't right. know if that makes any sense. No, it does. Yeah. Um, it's like, dude, like the, the anxious little white tender queer, like who's actually going to take in your message and believe it and listen to it and do it. Like you're fucking like how to, exercise what internalized white supremacy from my white body is like not the oppressor you're (laughs) like it's just all you're doing in that dynamic is in my opinion maybe this is whatever I I might be (laughs) speaking uh overstating but like that person who's actually willing to engage with that material they're just being psychologically damaged like no real meaningful change is taking place Mm -hmm. like that's not racial justice work Um, that's just someone making a little bit of money off of some nervous person trying to do self-help. Like Um, we talked about this a little bit in the last episode. I think it was the last episode on, um, accountability processes where like, basically we were like, you know, like people who are actually like, you know, scary, like in the sense that they're like actively like abusive people who have like a pattern of like repeatedly like violating people's boundaries and doing like violent things. Um, those people are not very likely to like willingly take part in this kind of thing. Right. So it's like the kind of, it's like what you're saying is like the kind of people who are very willing to like take part in these sorts of things and who can be like bullied into like submission, um, Mm -hmm. tend not to be like, like scary, violent people generally in my experience. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly it. That's what I've observed. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't even work on that level. It just, yeah, all it does is it, it, it's a, um, it's just an enforcement of, of ideology technique. It's a, I don't know. What mm-hmm. else is there to say? You've said it all. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to like, kind of ask about this is like, because you're like, okay, so we all know that constantly people are saying that cancel culture doesn't exist, right? It's Uh like a constant thing that they say. And then it's like a weird paradoxical like thing where they're like, it doesn't exist. And simultaneously it exists, but it's just justice. Um, It's like accountability. And also like no one is really canceled, but also it's like a righteous tool of the oppressed to get justice. So it's like all of these things are contradictory and make no sense. But like there's there's this sort of like um, reaction that a lot of people will have when bringing up cancel culture in which people really, a lot of people, they, they think that they're, that it's like not that bad, that it's like really not that bad. And so why are we making such a big deal out of it? And I can imagine um, that for you as a public figure who speaks on this, that you probably get a lot of canceled people talking to you about their experiences, because I know that we do like when you have like publicly, um, 
showing yourself to be a safe person to like talk to about that, then like there's like this huge influx of people who like want to tell their stories. And so like you get this like huge insider view of like what it is like for canceled people and like how traumatized they are and like how extremely disturbing like what has happened to them is. Yeah. Um, And because these people are like silenced in general, like the, the general public doesn't get to hear their stories. Um, so I just wondered if you wanted to speak to that at all. And like, if you have that experience. Yeah, I totally have that experience. Um, especially when I was starting to talk about this more like last fall through like, I don't know, March, 2021. Um, I would have people message me daily and tell me about their experience being canceled. And like you said, how traumatizing it is. Like you had Dr. Christine Marie pass, I think. Yeah. You had her on and she wrote an entire dissertation on media humiliation and how its impact is similar to that of literally fucking complex PTSD. You know, like it's not a small thing. Um, and so many people have experienced this. And the thing that's frustrating is that when people hear um, the term cancel culture and they see that someone is criticizing it, usually two things, this, they have two responses um, to try and dismiss it. One, well, what should we have done with Harvey Weinstein? Yes, like, constantly. Oh, fucking God, dude. Like not who they're like, there are so few people in the world that are like Harvey Weinstein in terms of power and reputation, you know, like enough. We're not even talking about that. Yeah. Yeah, And they always want to talk about that. It's always, always. it's always <laughs> what they want to talk about. Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing they'll say, which is part of both of these things are part of why I wrote that essay that Jay mentioned. The other thing they'll say is like, the only people that care about that are white people who got called out on their internalized white supremacy. Right. And I'm like, that's, that's a fucking, like, it's just false. First of all, there are plenty of people of color who have problems with and are openly speaking out against cancel culture. And who have also been like victimized by cancel culture. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And there are a lot of people, you know, like even among like the, the sort of crew that we have, like, um, like Stevie, who you had in the podcast, is a trans person of color. Like, it's not, like, some just weird brigade of white, evil, like, racist, quote, leftists. It's, it's like, no, this is actually a very diverse group of people who are identifying a pattern of abuse and are saying, let's stop doing this. Um, and anyway, to get back to what you were saying, Clementine, yeah, I've had a lot of people reach out to me who have been canceled or otherwise unfairly exiled from their community based off of fake um accusation or false accusations of what basically amounted to like ideological impropriety like not being uh, a good enough liberal identitarian not being woke enough and those people are not all white i have had many people of color who have shared that they went through this mm-hmm. you know um and they've been through this brutal cycle um yeah. Yeah, of course. And like, even when you do talk about fucking famous people, like who's the famous person getting canceled right now? Who is? Fucking Dave Chappelle. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. Oh. I, is I, he never... still? I thought that one blew over. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, I don't even care about that either, but it's just like, yeah. it's this fucking, it's like right. this idiotic. Yeah, like, exactly. Point that it's like only about whiteness, which again, like brings me back to the thing we were talking about earlier, where it's just like, people don't have any other word for like bad things they don't like than, than yeah. white. Remember when like last time Dave Chappelle was getting canceled? I don't know if you remember this, it was a couple years ago, people kept accusing him of being like, um, 
they're they're calling him like uh not honorary white but like uh like symbolically white or like some, yeah, some shit like that where I they're basically they're basically being like oh politically white they're calling him politically, politically white, white. You know? yeah and I'm like, that doesn't fucking mean anything it just means you don't like him you know yeah yeah <laughs> silly. that's like, so it's so fucked up and it's like racist it like that's racist. just racist dude yeah, yeah. literally it's awful um yeah and I mean it's like I'm definitely like extremely online unfortunately and have been for many (laughs) many years but I'm just like very aware of the cancellation spectacles that are like um that are like large scale that that get a lot of not I'm not talking about famous people I'm talking about regular normal people who have like a fairly large following online or for whatever reason their cancellation spectacle just blew up online in a really big way and I have witnessed so many of these and I know other people have too because I know that they're also extremely online (laughs) I'm like you're I don't know how you can pretend that you haven't seen this happen towards like racialized people, queer people, trans people, like all sorts of people who are extremely marginalized and yeah. have had like all sorts of fucked up things happen in their lives already. And like, you know this, like- You're it's literally just, fucking lying yeah. if you pretend that you haven't. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, I don't understand. It's like really weird, but- Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so the other thing I wanted to ask you about, which you talk a lot about is- your ideas about um, corporate social media and basically like the fact that uh, these um, accountability spectacles and cancellations are like very often happening in the context of this like corporate social media um, situation. And basically, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? What's going on with the corporate social media? So many (laughs) things are happening with corporate social media. Yeah, I mean, so... I think it's important to understand like online cancellation spectacles in the context of being online and the platforms on which they happen. And I think that the platforms um, kind of shape cancellation and they, they literally give it a platform to exist on a scale that is unimaginable for most people. Like you were just saying, you know, so many people that they might be like micro influencers or whatever, but they're not like fucking Paris Hilton, you know, and like free Britney, like, thank God. But no, I won't use Britney. Free Britney. I'm leaving it there. But they're not like this, like this celebrity, with, like um, with an entire PR team, with an entire like uh, uh, institution backing them to keep totally. them like protected. And they're, and they're not rich. Like they they're don't not have, rich. Like lawyers yeah. that they can just pay for, et cetera. Like, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, anyway, so uh, so this th- that whole kind of uh, how do I put this? Like. Um, if you think of like the tabloids of the 2000s or whatever and right. how they would attack celebrities, it's very similar to what we do now to each other online, I yeah. think, um, to um, like micro influencers even um, and even just to each other. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to be considered a micro influencer. Totally. But anyway, so part of why this happens is because of how social media has been constructed um, to kind of create the micro influencer and give this um, impression that people that have a K after their following on social media are like kings and queens and monarchs, you know? Well, that's what the um, K stands for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's what the K stands for. Um, yeah, so that's like one part of it. And then the other part of it is that like the way that social media has been created um, it rewards virality. It rewards antisocial behavior. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing people as a means to an end and, and like a prop. Like we see each other as props um, and our contributions as like 
uh, and other people's contributions as um, either entertainment or sometimes like another prop where if we can engage with it the right way and we can say something clever or witty enough then um you know or if we can take down their take and have the better take right then we can get more um you know like social currency ourselves so it's become this really weird like social economy um where people are pitted against one each one uh, one another uh to compete over virality compete over attention and oftentimes what that what we think and hope that that turns into is um actual money and is actual stability um so i don't know if if what i'm saying is really even making any sense (laughs) but yeah so um it's it's part of just how it has been built to maximize um or like not maximize but magnify some of the worst human impulses um yeah yeah totally and I guess like what I want to get you to get at a little bit more is like so it's like we have this idea and like we've all seen cancellations where somebody with like 20,000 followers is is described as having a huge amount of power right yeah um and it's like do they have a huge amount of power because they have 20,000 followers um does that mean that they have does that mean that they have money? Does that mean that they have like any kind of concrete material power? Like not necessarily, right? So it's like a huge misunderstanding of like what power actually is and means, especially in a context of like global capitalism and like these billionaires that we were talking about earlier. Um, But really in that situation, when we have, for example, one micro influencer being taken down by another one and like the the one that's taking them down like shoots up maybe 6000 followers because of their role in canceling this other one and yep. the other one like loses maybe like 20k followers because whatever you know like yeah um and so it's like this this like struggle for for followers but who's actually making money in this situation and exactly. who's actually who actually has power um and it's like the man behind the curtain right Exactly, exactly. And so it, it's the man behind the curtain, fucking the CEO of the company is making money off of um off of our behavior, off of the ways that we take each other down and kind of just engage in like gladiator warfare just for the benefit of of these fucking like tech giants. Um and it's just it's awful. Uh it's devastating to watch and I don't know. I, I don't know. It's it's so frustrating. And so I recently wrote something um, about this and I kind of came to this place recently. I don't know if I'm here forever, um, if I even fully agree with what I wrote. But part of what I said is I don't even know how we can do away with cancel culture until we do away with the corporatization of social media and the way that it has. Yeah, it's just become the mediator of um so many parts of our relational lives of our like internal lives of our professional lives um and i i don't i don't know i don't know how to if if it's possible i think that it's necessary um you know to or at least important to um you know do what you're doing right which is to talk about it and to encourage building like uh, a culture um with values that stand you know that support actual like healthy human relationship and healthy models of accountability um and but yeah i just i fear that without addressing 
the limitations of these platforms and um I don't know yeah I, I, mean, I feel pessimistic I feel like the thing that like like we haven't said yet but that I think is important to say in this episode we talked about it in another episode is just that like that like literally when we're on there we are the product like the reason that they're encouraging all of this stuff is because they are selling our attention to uh, companies who are advertising to us, right? And so, yeah. like, they want us to be on our phones and like looking at our screens for as long as possible because that is what the um, the like the companies that are like paying them they want to see that like we that they have all of these people staring at their phones as a captive audience to the various ads that are you know being shown to us in between these like cancellation takedowns, right? Um, yeah. And so, like, in that context, it's like, yeah, like, we're not free at all. No. Yeah. And the other thing I kind of want to say about that, if I if I can, like... Yeah, please do. We're, like, users of these platforms, and so we're consumers, but I I kind of feel like this might be a hot take. I don't know. It might be a wrong take, but I'll try it. <laughs> like, we're users and that we're consumers, but we're, in a way, also, like, workers. And the reason totally. I say that is because our... Um, I kind of see like the role of the user on social media as a worker in the same way that a participant in a, in like a, um, like a psychological experiment is a worker. Like they get paid to do that. Like if you're, if you're conducting an experiment, um, on people in, you know, in psychology or whatever field you're paying the participants. And that's kind of, very similar to the role and the function of the user on these platforms. Um, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like social media companies don't produce content. Yeah. No, exactly. They don't have to. Yeah, yeah. we do. And yeah. Right. And then also we are the workers in that we are creating the content for these people. Yeah. But even like outside of the content producer role, like I think that the, the mere users and the, and the lurkers, the civilians, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are, are, are working in their way. And it's, it's fucking bonkers. Um, because yeah, they're studying our data. Like yeah. they're studying our behavior and they're using our data to better predict like, buying habits. Right. And so like, regardless of your role, whether you're like producing a lot of content for them, or you're just like sort of passively engaging, like yeah. they're studying that and they're using that. And that's part of like what they do. So yeah, yeah. I mean, truly the consumers of social media corporations are advertisers who buy advertising. Yeah. Yeah. Like space. Um, okay, so what are some alternatives to this then? Like, what, like, dream big, Molly. Like, what are your dreams for a a non corporate internet? Like, what could that even look like? Oh God, that's like such a hard question. It really is. I mean, doesn't this just challenge the capitalist realism or whatever? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, it's it's really hard. And I actually thought about this question in particular, like, all morning, <laughs> and I. Um, and I've been trying to think of this. And so at first, like a few years ago, when I really started to like, um, to realize that the kind of context of social media, um, was driving so much of my problems with online, uh, relating, I was like, well, maybe all we have to do is kind of go back to this, this way of the 2000s internet where mm -hmm. everything was super decentralized. People were like um, engaging with each other on forums mm -hmm. and there, there was no like tech oligopoly, like fucking Facebook. And um, I don't even know if Twitter is formally considered part of like the actual big tech thing. But um, in terms of social media, like you've got Twitter, you've got Facebook, um, you've got 
what else do you, <laughs> you've got TikTok now, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, so like you have all of that um, and now, but you didn't have it back then. And so people were just making their own websites. People were making their own forum. And, you know, like, for example, there was, there, there wasn't really virality on the 2000s internet, you know? And I do really think that virality is a big part of what drives these kind of narcissistic impulses to just sabotage each other Mm -hmm. um, and all of that. So yeah, there was kind of this period where I was like, let's just do that again. Like, fuck that. But the reality of it is now is that like the internet has become integral to every part of our lives and society. And like Facebook is really global. Um, And so just trying to like go back to a kind of decentralized internet just doesn't seem realistic where you get to like talk and hang out with people. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense in the world that we're in. And that's where I kind of get stuck. Um, And so then I'm trying to think like, well, what is like my main, I guess, issue with the way that these spaces, uh, I don't know, are engineered. And I think that it's profit driven social engineering is like one of my biggest gripes. So I feel like one of the, one of the parts of social media's functions that I care about the most is how it mediates our relationships and our sense of ourselves. Um, and the ways that Facebook, et cetera, have kind of engineered um, how we relate to one each, one another is what I take really big issue with. So that's like what I'm most concerned mm-hmm. about personally, just because I care a lot about human relationships and connecting. And so my dreams may be a little bit focused on that. Um, I would like to see a social media sphere that is engineered, I guess, for healthy relationships. Um, but then that scares me <laughs> because I'm like, who, who defines what a healthy relationship right. is? Um, and so I kind of just wish that we could have like these like neutral places to meet and talk online. Um, and in the end, like my big dream is kind of simple, I guess. Um, it's kind of like, I wish that we could have an online version of a fucking bonfire. Like, I don't really want like the Disney world, like a Disney worldification of, of the social media sphere where everything is perfectly engineered to make us happy. But I just wish that we could have a neutral ground to stand on and like relate to one another. Um, that hasn't been engineered to manipulate like our darkest impulses. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, yeah. Um, can I tell you about some of my dreams? Yes, please. I'm sure you have far more interesting ones. <laughs> I mean, no, I just, you're just really making me think like a lot, like as I'm listening to you talk, you know, and one, one model that's really cool, obviously about the internet is the wiki model. Like Wikipedia is like actually like a, a amazing and astounding accomplishment of like human civilization, honestly. Uh, yeah. Wikipedia is fucking amazing and I mean people who know me know that I love Wikipedia <laughs> I spent I spent a lot of time just like reading Wikipedia pages read Wikipedia. but it's fucking yeah. Wikipedia is not owned by a fucking corporation yeah. and yet they yeah. have to amass like all known human knowledge it's pretty crazy like it's fucking insane you know yeah it's all done by volunteers and it's all completely decentralized and uh, mm-hmm. I mean I guess there's like a foundation there's like a Wikipedia foundation but it's like yeah. not a corporation right it's like a non-profit um 
and there's no ads and like yeah you know, it's, it's pretty yeah. completely yeah. like and there never will be ads you know yeah. on wikipedia you can't get canceled on fucking wikipedia wow. um, <laughs> although i hear that the uh behind the scenes uh moderator wars like on some of the yeah. <laughs> some of the articles can get pretty nasty but anyways um okay so that's like one element of it the other element of it is that we use these platforms facebook and instagram and tiktok and uh you know twitter and stuff but like the the companies that create those platforms are um they're parasitical in in a couple of ways like one is that they don't produce any fucking content and two is that like they they perform this like work of making these frameworks but as we know from wikipedia and from all the other sort of like um um what's the word i'm looking for you know all these like uh, software platforms and stuff that are like user created um I don't know what it's called. Uh, there's a word for it, but I'm, yeah. I'm just open source. Right yeah, open source. Exactly. Yeah. As we know from like the open source internet, uh, of which there's like a lot, right? Yeah. Like, you know, the um, uh, the software that I use to for like image creation, GIMP, you know, yeah. it's like completely open oh, source. Okay. Like there's all sorts of open source stuff, right? Um, so as we know from that, we don't actually need these corporations to be doing the like so-called work that they do because volunteers are perfectly not only perfectly able but stoked and ecstatic to do it um like there's so many like nerds out there who like want to spend their time like working on code for these collaborative projects right so that's the second yeah. element of it the third element of it element of it is that like we all have these phones and they're like supercomputers now because yeah. it's fucking 2021 and like they can like host like a lot of like information on them you know and yeah. so i dream about okay i'm gonna try to t tie these all together I dream of a social media that is not based on a platform um, owned by a corporation somewhere, but is rather it's more based like on your literal phone and you get to choose what it looks like and all the like settings and so forth are like for you to decide rather than for Instagram to decide. So Instagram decides exactly what Instagram's feed right, yeah. looks like. And it has these like weird rules that they just introduce. And they're like, now you're not allowed to like share stories or you, yeah, you know what I mean? They do that, and they're, they're yeah. just like, we have decided and we're Instagram. So we get to decide it yeah. because it's our platform, you know? But what if you decided all of those yeah. things? What if you decided whether you want the character limit to be 200 characters or whether you want it to be like more images that you see or more text or whether you decide like what kinds of like groups of um of content that you want to see and whatever and like honestly i think it would be really interesting because people would have to be a lot more tech literate to do it but that's like probably a really good thing because we should be literate about the environment that we're constantly spending all of our time in you know um and i think that it would be really interesting to just have this be like way more customizable and way more in the hands of the actual like user instead of in the hands of these gigantic corporations and for it to be all open source so that you don't fucking need these corporations to do the work for you in the first place mm -hmm. you know um so anyways i don't know i dream of that like a social media that has all these different like modes that are like extremely customizable and that you can make it like fit the way that you want it to be um and that is operating completely outside of the profit motive um can i say two things on this and then we'll move on yeah um so basically like i think that there's two issues with that are blocking you know people's capacity to like move to a to a different kind of social media um and basically what it is is that like oh periodically you will see that there's like these alternatives that pop up it's happened like a bunch of times like an alternative to facebook or like an alternative to something else and there's like a new social network but like there's two problems one mm -hmm. is that nobody wants to go there if people aren't there right yeah. Like the whole point is that we want to hang out with other people. And if like it's if everybody's on Instagram, everybody's on Facebook. So there's already like, you know, millions of people on there. But these mm -hmm. new ones, there's just not. So there's no incentive to kind of go and post there because people are not there yet. 
And two, a lot of the ones that I have seen that I've tried to start up, they have to do this thing that are like invites where like a person has it and then they have like an invite code and they can invite a few more. And the reason for this, I don't understand technology, but my understanding is that it will like crash their servers if like millions of people join all at once. And it's like a financial thing, right? Because you actually need to have like, because the internet somehow exists somewhere in real life. I don't really know about these things, <laughs> but basically it's like, it costs money to like host yeah. millions of people or billions of people like to do that on the internet, right? So I kind of think part of the issue is that it's like people don't want to go where people aren't. And so we need a way for there to be like a mass exodus to something new with yeah. like lots and lots of people. But then in order to do that, we need some kind of capital to back it up. And that is, I think, where we hit hit a wall, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I, I feel like, Jay, what you're describing feels to me like what I, what I dream about in terms of like, th that feels in some ways to be like a return to kind of the hobbyist 2000s internet, which it's was kind of like MySpace in a way. Because MySpace yeah, is like customized in a lot exactly. of ways. It was like the difference between like MySpace and Facebook. And I so deeply wish that MySpace won that, won that battle. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah. And it's just, it's so difficult because I think that a concession I would have to maybe give is like, I think that the world that we live in now is such that we need a centralized internet. Like, I think that it's, it seems impossible to have a fully decentralized, I mean, I guess that Wikipedia is centralized in a way um, for what it is. Um, but I don't know. I just don't know how to, how to reasonably think about like, not just sort of transferring the power of Facebook to another company um, or to the government, like to nationalize Facebook or whatever. Well, I think um, that the, honestly, like the, the open source model is an alternative to both of those things. And like, what if yeah. it was a co-op, but it's just like a co-op at a mass scale that we've never imagined. Before. It'd be global though, yeah, you know, yeah. like, it's just, I don't even know how like, to. Like if you run by user that. members, basically, you know, um, I don't know. Yeah. It's obviously like a gigantic topic that, uh, that I think all three of us like don't, aren't, yeah, we're not, we're like, not like, <laughs> to, like talking about like, no. uh, <laughs> I have no expertise. But in this I, I do, I do want to point out one, one last thing okay. before I think we move on yeah. just about the issue of like the gigantic servers. That yeah. have to run, okay, right? yeah. Which is that there is this model of like cloud computing that they use for, um, cool things like, uh, um, interpreting like telescope data and like you can sign up to like have your computer or your phone like like do like processing oh. in the background for these giant telescopes that have to process like crazy amounts of data from like their astrological like observations you know and they don't have the computers big enough to do it so they they like outsource it to people's computers and you can like sign up to have your computer do a little bit of calculating in the background while you're like doing whatever you know um, and I think that that model could actually work. And we're all walking around with these fucking phones in our pockets constantly all the time anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, right. like, what if, what if it was sort of like hosting like little bits or like, you know, the same way that we use um, fucking uh, all those download uh, uh, torrents, you know, like yeah. torrents kind of operate by like a similar process as well. Right. right. Is that web 3.0? Somebody keeps telling me to go read about <laughs> web 3.0 and I don't fucking do it, but I feel like maybe 
because it's about, I just Googled it. It's about interconnecting data in a decentralized way. And I think that maybe that is what you're talking about. I mean, maybe. Okay, and, maybe I'm going to just say, like, you, you can finish. Go ahead. Well, all I was going to say is that, like, right now, okay, like, if we invented the internet right now, there's no way that it would look the way that it, yeah. it looks, you know? Like, it, it's crazy the way that it looks. It's, yeah. like, run by a couple giant corporations. Like, I don't know. It's, like, insane, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I think that, like, you just have to look at what they're trying to do right now to be, like, okay like this is like not a good idea and it's not what we need to be doing like you know like facebook's like meta thing where they're like how about we turn the entire world into um <laughs> terrifying. Like, like a terrifying like virtual reality thing that we own and control yeah. you know um and 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 which will necessitate like um servers that will be like 10 times as huge as they have to be yeah. now yeah. to like to like cope with all the fucking data that we're doing and like instead i'm like how about we like decentralize this shit and like have it be like owned by the people who are actually using it i.e us rather than facebook you know yeah um and i remember like right at the beginning of the internet there was like the idea was actually that you would have like the beginning of the sort of like personal like civilian internet the idea would be that you would have a server in your house like everyone would have a server right. in their house and, and that never materialized, right. you know what I mean? And I think at the time it's because it was too expensive, but it's not too expensive anymore. Right. Anyways, I'll just leave us with that. Okay, so I'm just going to put a shout out to our audience. Hey, audience. If there's, any, <laughs> if there's anyone listening who is like a total computer nerd and knows all about these things and is like shaking their heads being like, what the fuck <laughs> oh, are these guys God. talking about? Please email us, fuckingcanceled at gmail.com. There's no you. There's two L's um please email us because we'd love to have you on the pod yeah so um <laughs> if you're like a leftist a socialist who actually has better ideas to answer these questions about servers and this and that and you know of what you're talking about please contact us okay, okay. moving on, moving on. <laughs> oh god okay so molly um you have a podcast it's like on hiatus it's been on hiatus for a little while but it's called out of the woods and basically it's about like cultishness and like people who have left groups or ideologies or organizations that have like cult-like qualities. Um, so I know that you have interviewed a couple people on that podcast. Not me, I note. <laughs> <laughs> I invited you. Um, including me and um, possibly, yeah, like there's a couple episodes on this that were people who were talking about leaving like social justice culture um, and talking about like the cultish qualities of the nexus. So do you want to tell us a bit about your podcast and about how this framework fits with um, social justice culture or the nexus? Yeah. So, I mean, the reason why I, I started that podcast was because of my own like crisis of faith in basically the nexus and in the fucking like leftish identitarian ideology um, it, like I said earlier, it was such a foundational part of my like formative years, you know? And so when I had to let go of that, it felt like leaving a cult. It felt like leaving a fundamentalist religion. And I would go to therapy like every day for a year. Um, like, you know, after Trump got elected, like something, something like a switch flipped in me. Um, and that was, that was like one Jenga block that got removed. Um, in 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 me breaking up with this whole ideology and so it was at that time when I I like started going to therapy and I was just like fucking mad about about politics and about all of this and I like needed to just talk about it somewhere um 
And I kept saying like every time I would go and if, if I brought this up, I would say, I feel like I'm leaving a cult. I feel like I'm leaving a cult. Um, and you know, I came to a place like years later where I was like, I feel like, yeah, you know, there is a way in which, um, in which all of this is fairly cult like certainly not a cult because there's not like a uniting figure, um, Mm -hmm. for this ideology. I know Clementine, cause yeah, I, I interviewed you on this podcast and you said that you think of it more like a fundamentalist religion, which I think is, um, you know, apt, um, And so anyway, yeah, so my own experience was the inspiration for that podcast. And I've had, yeah, yeah, I had several people on who have talked about their own kind of fall from grace or just, you know, fallout um, uh, from social justice, either um, after being canceled themselves or merely witnessing how uh, cancellations happen and realizing, this feels like an abusive relationship, like kind of realizing all of these ways in which their involvement with this belief system was um, kind of mirroring other abusive, uh, you know, experiences they had had in their lives. Um, Yeah. And I I know I, you know, there are many people who have kind of compared (laughs) the woke world to religion, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. Not all of them I'm politically aligned with, but I do think that that analysis is, is pretty apt um yeah for sure John McWhorter who again yeah like I'm not super politically aligned with him he's more of like a liberal um but I love his fucking linguistics stuff um but anyways yeah he's recently uh you know he's been promoting his new book um which basically like the entire argument of it is that like woke world is a religion like it's not like a religion it literally is a religion so according to him it, it it sort of like hits all the hits all the points of like what a religion is you know which is definitely an interesting perspective. I encourage people to at least check out um, John McWhorter's ideas about mm-hmm. this. Because, um, yeah, like, even if you don't necessarily agree with him on, like, economics or whatever, um, I think that he's, like, a... He's definitely an extremely smart guy. Totally, yeah. um, Who has some good ideas about this. Yeah. Um, t- tell us a little bit about ways that the nexus interacts with or exacerbates mental illness. I know that this is something that you have thought about a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean... I think it exacerbates it a lot, frankly. I mentioned earlier, um, like the idea of this very anxious person um, who is ultimately, I think like the target audience for a lot of of this, um, like a lot of this doing the work stuff. I don't know, like when I think of the people who are actually going to engage, with this very domineering material and this like very domineering dynamic mm-hmm. of I am the moral authority and you have to listen to me because you're fucking doing it wrong. And if you keep doing it wrong, then you're going to go to hell. <laughs> Basically, right. so you have to fucking listen to me. Right. Um, I'm like the people that that um, that are open to that are really, I think, I mean, I, this is a broad generalization, but tend to be more anxious individuals tend to be more willing to engage in like codependent behavior yeah Um, I mean sorry to interrupt but like yeah yeah. like in a certain way it literally filters out people who have like a who have good mental health (laughs) yes it does yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely I think it does for sure um yeah and so you know and so I I've talked about in particular like the way that this 
ideology, whatever, um, exacerbates OCD. So obsessive compulsive disorder, because there is a manifestation of OCD that um, is about scrupulosity. And so being like very rigid and sort of, um, I don't know, puritanical or purist or whatever about your, um, your political or spiritual or moral beliefs. And so Dude, like looking at the rhetoric that these fucking like social justice accounts use, it's just, it's so black and white. It's so militant. Mm-hmm. And the the threat of being publicly humiliated, of, um, you know, being seen as fundamentally bad and beyond repair, like those sorts of those sorts of fears are going to be um, exacerbated. And so this kind of compulsive scrupulosity is going to be magnified by this, by this culture and by yeah. this belief system. And I've had people when I've, because that's part of, I think what happened to me, I have like a, I don't really deal with like OCD stuff anymore. It kind of went away when I got like my shit um, medicated, like I have bipolar. And once I got that medicated, it kind of went away. Um, but like, yeah, I I've had people. And at the time when I was in it, I, I was super fucking scrupulous, you know, like I was so rigid and like steadfast about my beliefs. And if I said the wrong thing, I felt really anxious. I was constantly checking and checking and checking to make sure that I was saying the right thing. I still fucking struggle with that now, you know, like uh, even on this podcast, I feel like I'm not even saying what I, what I, you know, fully, um, what I fully even believe, I feel like I struggled to articulate it because I'm constantly still like I've gotten into the habit of practicing filtering and censoring and censoring. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that's kind of, it it can become a compulsion for people. And so, yeah, that's, it it exacerbates all sorts of shit. And it's also fucking traumatic to get canceled. Um, and it's stressful to see other people's lives destroyed. Yeah, totally. Totally. And it's like, yeah, I talk a lot about like attachment theory and stuff like that, but like, I'm like, you know, it's not a, it's not a healthy environment for like good, strong community and relationships and like a sense of like self-esteem and self-worth to like watch people around you be taken down in these brutal ways and to like constantly like self-monitor so that you don't accidentally say something that is going to get you taken down. Like, SD, like, it was so bad for my PTSD. And I actually yeah. found that what ended up happening literally is that as I re- started to recover from PTSD through like therapy, I got to a point where I was definitely going to get canceled because I had enough integrity and boundaries and like a healthy sense of self that like yeah. when they came for me, I didn't just lie down. Right. Yeah. Like, I was able to be like, this is unhealthy and inappropriate behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to like internalize your projections. Um, right. Yeah. And I also think that it's um, on both ends, like the people who are um, being canceled and afraid of being canceled and who are like very carefully, like trying to prevent themselves from being canceled. This obviously can all be behavior that is like indicative of like mental health stuff going on, or like it can be making mental health stuff that is going on worse, but also for people who are like canceled crusaders. Yeah. um, There's a lot of like mental health stuff going on that instead of like checking in with these people and being like, you know, your behavior is like quite inappropriate and like, yeah. I'm concerned about you. People are just like applauding it because it's like, like you were saying, it's like tabloid stuff and, and people are just engaging. 
Right, exactly. And yeah, like people can get straight up delusional and fucking paranoid. And like, if you're like, believe all survivors, it's like, I'm sorry, but sometimes people like have psychotic illness. Like it's, it's a fact of human reality, you know, it's just, and sometimes people are experiencing really devastating delusions and they need mental health intervention. That's not the truth of, you know, every single cancellation ever, but I'll tell you right now, I've had someone going after me for a while who has strung together and also you, I don't want to talk for yeah, your totally. experience, but like, um, anyway, yeah. Who's, you know, has been going after like this whole fucking conspiracy theory where it's like, this person is not like, well, like they're, they're seeing connections that aren't there. And it's like, it's really devastating when, um, nobody intervenes and, um, yeah. And, and so like, and I know that if fucking, if psychosis is not intervened on early, like I'll say it like this, the earlier that you can notice that somebody is psychotic, the earlier that you can intervene on it, the better the prognosis is, especially when it's like the first episode of psychosis. And so many young people are like the bulk of the people I think that are in this ideology and influenced by it are young people. And illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, like have an onset in the ages, you know, between the ages of like 16 to 25 for schizophrenia in males, whatever. And then for females, whatever, it's, um, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's like 20, 25 to like 35, you right. know what I mean? And so it's like, we need to be looking out for this. Like no, we need no, to be no kidding, aware. Man. Yeah. yeah. And like, usually like, you know, in a, in a normal context, like, um, if somebody started to say things that were like, um, that sounded delusional where they were like being excessively paranoid, coming up with like, you know, intense stories about people that they don't know, drawing connections that don't make sense. Like the people in their lives would probably normally like comment on that and be like, this is a bit concerning. Um, and maybe do some kind of intervention with the person to check in and we try to get them some help. But the internet does the opposite where it just like throws gasoline on the fire. And of course you are feeling delusional and paranoid. And then you say these things and people respond to it by like signal boosting it to thousands of people and applauding you of course that is going to increase the delusional thinking because it's being validated back to you for sure and like you can see how this happens on both the left and the right in different ways and on the right it's shit like QAnon which you know they're like it literally is like um I think it was on Chapo they called it sort of like internet induced schizophrenia where it's yeah. just like you know you have people like thousands of people scouring fucking like the the weirdest corners of the internet for evidence of a terrifying conspiracy you know um that that aligns with whatever their political ideas are but on the left you have like the same kind of shit going on where people can use um or they can construct these like very elaborate conspiracies out of uh, bits and pieces from their ideological perspective, you know what I mean? And so yeah. if, you're, if you're on the left or if you're, you know, an identitarian liberal, um, yeah, you you will end up um, constructing conspiracies involving, uh, you know, things that fit within within that framework, obviously, right? Like, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And yeah, I've talked about this also, but um, 
like on a different topic from psychosis, like with uh, complex PTSD and like trauma stuff, like obviously people with complex PTSD are, you know, very stressed out by living under cancel culture because they're, you know, hypervigilant anyway. And have, like similar to the OCD stuff have a tendency to like very heavily like monitor their own behavior and like be on the lookout for danger or for getting into trouble, things like this. Mm-hmm. But also like, you know, um, people with complex PTSD tend to have both an issue like um, noticing danger mm-hmm. and also noticing when something isn't dangerous, um, yeah. like being able to tell the difference, right? Like that's like a huge issue that people with complex trauma have. And so like in a similar way, like both for people who are being canceled or who are living in fear of cancellation and also for the cancelers, like this is bad for people with PTSD because somebody who has PTSD, who is saying this person is abusive, like they need a like loving community to surround them and be like, okay, like what specific behavior are you describing to help them discern whether or not it is abusive behavior or whether or not this person is in a conflict that is profoundly flooding their nervous system and making them feel like they're in danger because they are a survivor of past trauma, you know? And I'm like, yeah, like as a trauma person, you know, like who like very much cares about traumatized people. I'm like telling a person with complex PTSD that their emotional reality is like evidence of what is happening is literally the opposite of what is like at asked in like trauma treatment, which is that actually our distressed dysregulated nervous system as part of PTSD is not actually reflective of what's happening a lot of the time and we need help and support to like differentiate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So totally. What's the next question? I think it's you or is it me? No, it's you. Okay. Um, all right. So, um, we haven't been that controversial in this episode, I don't think, but (laughs) so, uh, Molly, one of the topics that I know that you feel passionate about and that you also take a lot of heat over is that your ideas having to do with weights, um, the American food culture and health. So basically for, I'm sure our listeners are aware, but like there is like a body positive culture that exists that very much takes issue with anyone um, expressing concern about, for example, like the, like capitalist fast food culture, um, or saying that like certain foods are like actually not healthy and eating them in vast amounts could actually be like very detrimental to your health. Right. Um, there's sort of like a collapse that happens where people, um, assume that critiquing those things is the same as like, you know, being like bigoted or awful to people who are fat. Um, and so, yeah, like, You've been really like, I know you've gotten heat about talking about these things. So how does the the Nexus shut down inform conversations about health, food, and capitalism? Yeah, great question. <laughs> Very controversial topic. <laughs> Out of everything that I have posted on my Instagram, when I talk about this, that is when I lose the most followers. I made a post about this and I lost like 700 followers. Wow. Three hours, dude. And I don't have like a huge following. Yeah. 700. That's a lot. Maybe it's 300. I don't know. It was multi hundreds. (laughs) (laughs) I'm overstating. I don't know. But it was a fucking lot. And I was like, I was like, it was just, it was bonkers. It was like, whoa, people really don't want to talk about this. But anyway, so how does the Nexus prevent conversation? Well, I mean, it is the way of the nexus to, you know, shut down dissent, like, across the board. Right. Um, But in particular, I think that the way that, um, yeah, I mean, okay, so they do the thing where they fucking, like, flatten harm, right? Like, nexus flatten harm. Um, They they basically say that 
using certain language or making certain, like even asking certain questions is um, maybe it's a form of harm through like invalidation or just uh-huh. the, like, you know, you can't even use the fucking word obesity. Like you, if right. you say the obesity epidemic, you can't even speak like, because that is seen as um, uh, not, not even a real thing. And it's like, um, if you use that, then you're not qualified to talk basically because they sort of see you as mired in um, right. like, wrong think for lack of a better word or the dominant kind of uh ideology from their perspective um that is uh inherently harmful to fat people or fat phobic or whatever the other thing that they have very cleverly done these folks with an x have um they have conflated fat phobia with uh white supremacy by saying that it is inherently fat or it that fat phobia is inherently white supremacist. So if they can deem you fat phobic through your use of language or whatever, then you are also a white supremacist. And if you are a white supremacist, you're a Nazi and you don't get to, you don't get to at all. In fact, you should, you're better off dead, frankly. Um, And so that's kind of, I think how it works logistically, but yeah, is does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But maybe for our listeners, since this is yeah. like a controversial topic and perhaps they haven't yeah. heard this perspective, can you just like break down what exactly it is that you are arguing for that is getting you in so much trouble and yes. you lose all those followers? Yeah. <laughs> those maybe 300, maybe 700. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what I believe is, first of all, I believe that the obesity epidemic in the United States is absolutely incon- incontrovertibly true. Like it's it's just a fact of 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 our society. Um, a lot of people reject that foundational premise. Um, there are a lot of reasons why they reject that. One of them is one of them. Um, is basically that fat is not unhealthy, that it doesn't have any bearing on your actual like physical well-being. And I'm like, that is false. Like it actually does. <laughs> like being overweight um, does have an impact on your body. And I don't have to like get into the science, but if people are interested, um, I can just, there's, there's this word, there's this uh, metaflammation, Google metaflammation, and uh, you'll learn about how basically having excess fat um, alone is uh, seems it seems to be enough to increase the level of inflammation in your body. Um, and of course, inflammation in the body leads to a whole cascade of issues. Yeah, okay. I know all about so, that. You know all about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's that's like that's the thing. I merely accept that the obesity epidemic is real, and that um, you know being quote obese. However, we want to choose to measure it. Um, I'd like to measure it through fucking waist circumference or something better than the BMI. Yes, I recognize the BMI is faulty. Um, I believe that it is that obesity exists. Next, next thing I believe is that um, you actually can lose weight. You actually um, can choose to eat differently if you'd like to. However, I don't think that it is necessarily like the individual's um, fault, or even, I don't know, arguably even like their quote, a responsibility to 
um, to, to lose weight and become a normal weight and manage normal weight because the food environment of the United States is completely stacked against them. Um, the food environment of the United States is like lining our shelves um, and <laughs> with hype, uh, um, highly caloric, um, hyper palatable foods. And so we live in this fucking food environment that has a surplus of calories that can be delivered to you in a very small amount of food. And, um, and what happens? I mean, you fucking gain weight. Like you just, that's, it's just, and on top of, um, a lot of Americans are very sedentary because we don't have an infra, like the, the infrastructure of our society, um, and like work culture in our society, um, and even like the nature of the work that a lot of Americans do is not very physical. Like we don't live in a very physically active, um, you know, society with the exception of maybe like cities where walking around in public transportation is more, um, doable and realistic. But so our environment is just, it, it's obesogenic. Like it, it is, it generates obesity. And I actually see this as, a really, um, a really huge issue because like the health complications that follow from obesity and our food environment, um, are heart disease, are diabetes, um, and infertility in women, um, that can, you know, follow like, uh, or at least reduced fertility, fertility in women. Um, and exorbitant costs of healthcare. Like this is all tied into, um, you know, the oppression of people in the United States. And the reason that it's happening is not because of individual failures to maintain their weight. It's happening because of these fucking corporations who want to profit off of their shitty fucking products, no matter um, the impact that it has on the fucking pop, like the human population of our society. And for whatever reason, this is highly controversial. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's like an entire, uh, industry that's emerging on like Instagram, especially and, and everywhere where it's really taken off, um, on social media to basically like say you can eat whatever you want. And I get it. It's a, it's, it's like a reasonable response. I get it to like the diet industry and to quote diet culture or whatever that has like tried and failed to, um, you know, solve the obesity or whatever, um, by like moralizing and saying, you should do this. You need to do this. You need to look good. And they really relied on beauty standards, right. right. With the diet industry. And now there's this kind of reaction that's like, well, you can love yourself at any weight. Like your health actually doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> or sometimes people will say that like, right. Health is more than just your physical health. What about your mental health? Um, and all of that. And it's, it's just like, man, this is, this is really good for the food industry. This entire fucking thing that's happening here with all of these like, uh, dietitians or like self-love coaches and all of these, you know, people and bloggers or writers about these topics. Like you're actually, you're actually doing the food industry in the United States a really great service because you are completely deflecting from the problem. And in fact, kind of, uh, you're continuing to individualize it, um, by saying like, well, the solution to this 
to this tragedy, which is that we all hate ourselves, is that you just need to learn how to love yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually feel like, uh, maybe this is really controversial. Um, Lay it on us, Molly. <laughs> but, oh, this is, I feel, I feel nervous to say this, but I'm just going <laughs> to say it. I think that um, human beings have many, come in many different shapes and sizes. It's true. A lot of us are tall. A lot of us have different builds. So some people are wider than others. Some people are stout. Some people are like tall and lanky. And that's true, you know? However, I do think that human beings are simply not meant to carry a lot of extra weight. And I think that it is um, a reasonable human response um, to carrying excess weight to feel bad about yourself and to feel uncomfortable um, and to not feel like, uh, you know, beautiful or just happy with your appearance. And I think that's, it, it makes sense. And I think part of it might be beauty standards. Um, but I also think that part of it is like, wow, I can't move the way I want to. Like, wow, it's really hard to carry around all of this. Um, and I'm saying this from, as a person who like has this experience. Um, and so, you know, there's only so much that like affirmations can do um, to support your self-esteem. And I actually wonder if we were in a, if we were in a world that had, um, that had a food environment that was optimized for human functioning and like, um, management of our health and our weight or whatever, I wonder how much our self-esteem issues would be, uh, improved. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, um, does that make, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, like, it, what it makes me think of, and this is like, maybe I'm just going to bring more controversy into this episode, but like what it makes me think of is like, um, in the, in the like substance use world, right. In the harm reduction world, there is, you know, the very understandable push, which I 100% agree with that we should like decriminalize drugs. We should destigmatize drugs that like treating drug users like shit and criminalizing them and like dehumanizing them is bad. Obviously the, the push for that, like somehow got tied up with this, like um, situation where it becomes extremely problematic and like punishable to talk about the fact that being an active drug addict is a really hard time, you know? Um, (laughs) and I have like seen like, you know, people get really, really mad about context, like where you're saying like, you know, that, that there's suffering involved, that there is suffering involved and to like acknowledge that there's suffering involved is not to like co-sign the dehumanization of these populations. Yes. And I also think that it's like, you know, people, people should be like, we live under this like fucked up context that we currently live under. Right. We aren't in this like socialist context where people have everything that they need. And so since we are where we are, you know, people are doing the best they can with what they have. And sometimes like being a drug addict is like where they're at right now and what they need to do to survive. And I think also there's people who are like, you know, um, relating to like food and exercise in ways that are like, this is just like where they're at right now. And that's, that's fine if that's where they want to be. But I think that the issue is, is that not everybody wants to be there. And there are people who want to like make changes in their lives or who would like to make changes in their lives if that was possible for them. And it's not given like the current circumstance. Right. And I think that as socialists, we should care about people having everything that they need to have access to health. And like, 
you know, not everybody, um, it, like not everybody, that's a priority for them. And it's like, mm-hmm. as human beings with autonomy, like we actually get to decide if we give a fuck about that or not. Right. Like individual, yeah. right? but like that, if that's not actually an option for you, like a realistic option for you to access it, or if all the responsibility for that is like on you as an individual and you have to like mm-hmm. struggle against capitalism to like access health, like that's the problem, you know? Yeah. And I think that like, you know, in the nexus, it's gotten totally, completely intense about this issue where you're right. Like anyone who sort of points out that like, yes, the diet industry is crazy. So is the fast food industry. And both of these things are making like mass profit off of people at the expense of their health. Like that those people are like totally just told to shut up and called fat phobic, even if they are fat themselves, even if they are fat themselves and identify as fat and like love themselves. And also just like also want to practice healthier types of behaviors. Were people trying to cancel some fat celebrity for like not for like wanting to lose Adele weight or something? Was or Lizzo? Is Lizzo? Lizzo. I mean, yeah, they, they celebrities who lose weight do get canceled for it for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. They get criticized at the very least. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, you know, like <laughs> right at the end of your spiel, um, Molly, you were like, you know, I bet that if if we had a food environment that was more optimized for people's health, then maybe people like wouldn't feel so bad about their bodies and maybe they'd be healthier and stuff. And I'm like, you don't have to bet. You can look at other places that are not the United yeah. States. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's like, yeah. you know, in, and it's not that like, you know, Italy has like a food environment where the, you know, the, the government like mandates that everyone has to eat like a certain amount of olive oil per day or something like that, but it's just like a cultural norm, right. Where people yeah. eat differently. Um, and also that like, portions are way fucking smaller outside of the United States, including here in Canada, right? Yeah. And like Canada honestly has like a very similar food environment, I think, to the United States, but just like ramps down like a couple of levels. And the impact of that is visible when you walk around. Um, yeah. And yeah, like in just the way that, the pe- that people look, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. So very controversial topic. Um, yeah. But I mean, I don't think that it should be, right? And I think that the conflation between like criticizing um, like a capitalist venture, like the food industry, like fast food industry, that that is like collapsed into um, dehumanizing fat people. Yeah. Like doesn't make sense. For sure. And I think that it should be absolutely uncontroversial across the entire left and also anyone else who isn't like a total piece of shit that dehumanizing (laughs) fat people for the way that they look, um, you know, treating them as if they are lesser, um, you know, making like rude comments about them or treating them as though they are, you know, whatever, you know, um, as if they have no self-control or like whatever, like all this kind Mm -hmm. of stuff is completely unhelpful. It's cruel. We shouldn't be doing it. Um, That is not at all the point of what you're talking about. Um, And other people who are critical of this, of the, of the fucking food industry and, and, and who are able to, you know, honestly accept that there is such a thing as the obesity epidemic, which I think is also completely uncontroversial. Um, And yeah. And I, I really wish that we were able to have more of a, um, informed discussion about this kind of thing because yeah honestly i think that the fat acceptance um um section of the nexus is one of its craziest sections like it is the worst how in how sort of like unmoored from reality yes and i'm not saying that everyone who is in that world or who cares about those issues is like that because that's certainly not true Mm -hmm. and i think that the fat acceptance or like health at every size kind of like movement has a um you know, a sort of portion that is super nexus and a portion that is less nexus, you know? And and I think that, you know, whatever, that's fine. Um, but I do think that, yeah, like the, 
the the real detachment from reality that can occur in some of those spaces is like really like mind-blowing to see yeah I completely agree and like I I always so a lot of the time when I'm like talking about what you call the nexus I feel like I talk about like racial identitarianism because Mm -hmm. it's so rampant in public like popular public discourse but I try to like I try to say sometimes like yeah there's that but the worst offender is absolutely like the fat acceptance world because like you said it's so unmoored from reality and um it's just and it's really tragic because um people's people's lives are at stake even though like people aren't gonna drop dead like you know just from carrying like 50 extra pounds like on the spot you know but I'm like over over a lifespan um the quality of life of people who are are obese I mean tends to be uh a a lot um a lot lower yeah like lower quality of life than people who are um able to maintain like a normal weight and like activity or whatever you know like it's just it is what it is and it's really really heartbreaking because to me it's such a fundamental human issue like I want like I, I keep saying this like I don't want people to have to experience excess suffering um if if they don't have to and I don't think we have to for sure. Um, it's like, yeah. imagine if we found out tomorrow that high fructose corn syrup was making people blind, you know, like, yeah. we wouldn't start going like, oh, well, blind people are beautiful. Like blind people can, you know, well, be like happy and healthy. So like, why do you care about people going blind because of high yeah. fructose corn syrup? You know what I mean? Like, we would never do that. Like, I mean, I well, mean, I think we would maybe some people fucking would. Yeah, I think that there are parts of the nexus that would do that. But I don't know, like, to me, I'm just like, the bottom line is that like, being a socialist, being a leftist, like caring about human beings, one piece of that most definitely is like um, fighting against any form of dehumanization or discrimination against people as exactly as they are. Like yeah. people get to exist exactly as they are, whether they're healthy or not, whatever. Like we, people should not be dehumanized and they have the right to exist as they are without any sort of like yeah. that, right? Like that's one piece. And then the other piece is like really... Um, caring about people's autonomy and like maximizing their autonomy and their ability to make the choices that they want to make for themselves with full information um, so that they can make truly informed decisions about the life that they want to live and that those choices, like something is not a real choice if there isn't another choice, right? And people do not have access to um, like nutritious food, to like time off their job where they're just, they sit all the time where they don't, if they don't have like this full life where they get to make these types of decisions for themselves, then we don't actually know that people are making a, a choice. Like they, yeah. they don't actually have the freedom to make a choice. And I think that if they did have the freedoms, there are some people who probably would be like, actually, um, I'm happy as I am. And like, I like eating the food that I eat and it's fine for me. And there's a lot, like, there's a lot of other people who'd be like, I would prefer these other options if they were available to me. Yeah. Okay. So you want to move on to the next question? Yeah, let's move on. Um, so just to take something much less spicy, uh, uh, you wrote an article entitled my non-binary identity was a cope. Um, tell us more about your lived experience as a non-binary person. Oh my God. Yeah. So my non-binary identity was a cope. When I, when I, I mentioned earlier, like I left this office job that I had and, um, I like started a witch business where I was like reading tarot and whatever. Um, 
And it was at this time that I was also, like I mentioned, like really ill. So I was like really mentally ill and I wasn't getting the right treatment that I needed. And I didn't, I didn't get a, like an accurate diagnosis or whatever. Um, and I also was really physically ill. I was having a lot of digestive issues. Um, and I had like an undiagnosed sleep disorder as well that I later got diagnosed. Um, and like, <clears throat> and so there was like this, I was in this moment in my life where I was simply unwell and I was really, really sad and disappointed with myself and really ashamed of the light, like the way that my life had gone. I was 22 or 23 and I had envisioned a life for myself where like I was going to go to grad school and I wasn't going to be crazy and sick. And I was, you know, I was going to live like a kind of normal quote unquote life. Um, and it felt like that opportunity had really kind of been stolen from me by all of these like kind of seemingly inexplicable symptoms. Um, and so I was just like, and I was also really isolated because it was pretty soon after um, I had graduated college and like my friends had left to go move to their respective new locations post-college and um, I didn't have a lot of people around me. And so I was really struggling to find like stable ground um, and even like purpose or it was like I had really had my identity stolen from me um, from all of these, you know, experiences I was having. Um, and so I kind of did this thing <laughs> to cope where I really tried to see what I was going through as, um, somehow kind of magical. Um, I, I tried to like almost romanticize it because I was like, I'm so miserable. I need this to mean something. Like I need this to mean something. And, um, it was also at this time that I was really struggling with like my, um, my, I guess, body image because I had gained a lot of weight really quickly. Um, just from, yeah, from gaining weight. I, I ate too many calories basically. Like I was just saying before. Um, and I didn't like who I was. Um, and I didn't feel like I looked the way I wanted to. I wasn't living the life I wanted to. And one of the ways that I tried to find a sense of agency in all of this and make sense of everything was like, you know, I'm non-binary. Like I don't occupy any sort of box very well. Um, and it is true that, you know, I, I think like I tend to present pretty femininely. I think I look like a pretty feminine person. I don't know. I've been told that. I don't really feel like that. Internally, I do feel like pretty masculine. I feel um, like, you know, I, I used to say all the time in college to like my best friend, I feel like a little boy in my sister's clothes or something. Like I, I just didn't really feel like fully woman or girl or whatever. Um, and so it kind of made sense, but it also was just like a kind of desperate grasp at stability and self-love and power, I think, honestly, um, because I, I just felt so dejected and demoralized <laughs> of being alive. And it, this label seems to have so much, so much to it that would make things feel okay. Um, and I'd be able to like find community within it. I'd be able to 
concretize these really abstract experiences of suffering that I was going through. Um, and yeah, so it was a cope. <laughs> and the reality is, uh, I eventually realized, you know, um, is like, a, a lot of what I was struggling with was just fucking mental illness. Like I was just not well. And like the, the self image stuff, um, you know, I just wasn't happy with my body. Like I didn't look the way that I, the, I didn't look the way that I used to look when I was younger. Um, I had gained a lot of weight. I, I had like a completely different body shape at that point. Like I frankly, like I just kind of looked like a dude with a beer belly. Like I didn't really like have any kind of shape to me. Um, and so it felt like my kind of femininity, like the way that I conceive of my own personal femininity, like physically was taken um, or not taken, but it was just gone. And yeah, so I kind of tried to cope with it and twist it into something magical and positive and meaningful by identifying as non-binary. I don't think that um, it felt like it made sense at the time, but now that I'm not suffering anymore, I'm like, man, that wasn't it. You, you missed the mark there, buddy. Like, good try though. Um, and, <laughs> and I kind of, I mean, so I say in the article, you know, not everybody who's non-binary has this experience. Like this is in many ways, like a pretty unique experience. However, I also think it's not that unique. <laughs> like, I think that there are other people who have gone through what I've gone through. I know that because they message me and they tell me, like mm -hmm. they read my article and they're like, yeah, I feel this way and I feel weird about it. I'm like, you don't have to feel weird about it. <laughs> Honestly, Molly, I think it would be so funny if we had met at a different time in our lives because like yeah. we were like kind of the same. Like yeah. I um, was also like a professional tarot reader, like also like, you know, very Tumblr and also yeah. I still like identify as gender fluid and I still use she and they pronouns. But like yeah. during that time in my life where I was also like, you know, struggling with a lot of mental health stuff and um you know, very deep inside the nexus, but also like terrified for my life being in there. Um, uh, and like feeling very powerless, but also like not sure why kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, that was the time in my life where I was like very obnoxiously intense about the they, them pronouns. Yeah. Uh, like made a really big deal of, about it all the time. I think I've shared this, um, on the podcast before, but I remember from the time of my life, I wore a shirt that said the future is queer to like, this like um, meeting um, for like something to do with my my degree. And like, there was like a woman who was like of a different generation there and she was not in the Nexus. And she was like, what does that mean? And I was just like, Ugh. like, I just like, I was like, How dare you? I was like mad about it because like, actually I don't know what that means. And <laughs> You know what I mean? And I was just like, God, like, obviously that's transphobic. You know? But like, actually, like, I don't have any idea what the hell I was saying. Um, but yeah, like, I do think that there is this thing. And for sure, like, of course, like, lots of non-binary people are non-binary. Um, yeah. that's, that's, like, very legitimate. And also, I think that this, like, micro-focusing on, like, identity categories and stuff can be a way that people just cope with, like, larger feelings of powerlessness, overwhelm, and so on, especially yeah. in the capitalist realist hellscape. So it doesn't surprise me that people relate to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and I mean, what the fuck even is non-binary? Like, I'm non-binary. I know that I am, uh, and I'll I'll fight you about it. But like, I'm also like, <laughs> I, I I fucking it's way way more important to me that people just you know try to do their best to see me as like a whole human being and not just like a man um, than yeah. it is that they use like the correct pronouns or whatever. Like, I don't 
care about that you know what i mean like i want to be seen as like a full person who has like a feminine side you know or who has like you know mannerisms and an internal experience that are you know like a bit more complex maybe than just like just being being a masculine man you know and i think yeah. that i'm not like alone in that like that's like many all but everybody a lot of people fucking feel like that you know what i mean and i choose to sort of express that um publicly through using the term non-binary and for people who actually know me i ask them to use they them pronouns uh, yeah but yeah like you know i'm i don't use they them pronouns at work like i don't first of all i don't want people to know about my internal gender experience at work uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And second of all, it's like confusing for fucking like old ladies, you know. Anyways, yeah. so it's fun. Um, yeah. Um. So yeah. So basically, like this is going to be like our last question before we we close up. But okay. um, we thought it would be a nice note to leave on. So you've written a lot about um, avoiding cruelty as an important value for you, and also not letting cancel culture crush your spirit. So can you talk about that? Why don't you want your spirit crushed? <laughs> I don't want my spirit crushed because it's a miserable place to be and it also alienates you from people you know and it totally throws you off of your um at least for me like it totally throws me off my principles um and my like sense of my sense of direction um when I feel when I'm so focused on the ways in which I have been wronged or hurt um I become resentful I become bitter I can't see people as the whole people that they are, you know? Um, and I, I feel like, I feel like over the last like nine months, I have been in that kind of more resentful place more frequently than I have been in like a, a not resentful place, like a loving place, um, just because of everything that's happened for me in the last nine months. Um, but I like, don't want that. I don't want that to win. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that, you know, people can change. And even if I don't have to deal with their process of changing and I don't have to, I don't have to be there and forgive them and Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, I want to be able to believe that the world can be, uh, be better. Um, and I don't, it, it may be like corrupt in many ways, but I, I want to believe that we can build back better. Vote Joe Biden. <laughs> wow. wow, Molly. <laughs> the truth comes out. <laughs> fucking dirty Democrat. Wow. Yeah, that's that was definitely feel- not the note that I wanted no. to end on. Don't be cruel. Don't be cruel. That's the note to end on. Mm-hmm. Don't vote for Joe Biden again. <laughs> yeah legit all right yo thanks so much for being on man um that was a hilarious interview i gotta say we really covered a lot of weird ground yeah um yeah yo uh, where can people uh find you how can they contact you what's your how can they support your work how can they support your work yeah so you can find me on instagram at mole francis um (laughs) yeah i just have to say that it's really funny how so many people when they talk about you call you mole It's really funny. Like people are always like, yeah, like if you want to know more about like, you know, critiques of cancel culture, I really recommend that you check out the work of Clementine Morgan and Mole, Mole Francis. <laughs> and it's just, they just think that's your name. It's really funny. Oh, that's so funny. No, it's Molly. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. 
Um, and yeah, you can find me on Substack. And if you want to uh, subscribe monetarily, you can. It's mollyfrancis.substack.com. And I also have a Patreon where I post more personal writing. And romantic um, and, writing. And romantic writing. <laughs> yeah. And that's uh, patreon.com slash Francis. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Molly. It was great.